Well, Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our series through uh, the book of Romans, a series uh, which I've entitled The Gospel of God, which is uh, Paul's own words in his uh, introduction uh, to his epistle uh, of Romans, the gospel uh, of God. Please hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse Let's begin in verse 1, but uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11, and uh, in particular this morning at verses 4 through 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in particular uh, this morning, Lord, for Romans 8. What a glorious chapter and a glorious book. We pray that you would teach us more about our salvation in Christ and how we are to live united to him by grace through faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans is a powerful lesson in stark contrasts. It's a powerful lesson in stark contrasts. We've seen this. We've seen that Romans makes no allowances for spiritual fence straddling. We hear it all the time. So-and-so's on the fence spiritually. They're not a Christian, but they're not really an unbeliever. They're on the fence, spiritual fence straddling. Well, Romans has no category for this. In fact, the Bible has no category for this. This is one that mankind has made up in their heads to stay in some kind of state of, of, of uh, some nebulous state, which actually lands them straight in the area of being outside of Christ. Indeed, over the last seven chapters, we've learned about these contrasts, haven't we? That a person either remains spiritually dead in Adam or has been made spiritually alive in Christ. There is no via media, no middle way. 
One is either still under the impossible demands of the law for salvation. In other words, one is either under those impossible demands and trying uh, uh, um, foolishly to try to obey those commands for salvation, which is impossible, or rather than being under the impossible demands of the law for salvation, one is under the salvation blessings of grace in Christ. Either or. It's one or the other. One is either condemned by sin or justified by faith in Christ. There's not one, it's either one or the other. There's no halfway condition. One, Paul has taught us, is either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness or a slave of Christ. Again, there's no spiritual tertium quid. The Bible mentions no undefined, undefined third spiritual way or status before God. And many will claim to live in this kind of spiritual halfway house, but a person can only be in one spiritual condition or another, either dead in sin or alive in Christ, full stop. One condition leads, Paul has taught us, to wrath and judgment and eternal death. And the other condition that is in Christ leads to mercy and salvation and eternal life. Beloved, what could be more important for us to understand this morning than where we stand, than who we are and whose we are? There are lots of questions being asked in the world today. Who's going to win the election in this or that state? Who's going to win uh, the, the, the college football playoffs? I'm not that worried about that anymore, honestly. But who, who is, Who's going to win the next championship? These are all questions people are asking, and they seem to be of the utmost significance. But this is the most important thing for us to understand. These have eternal implications As we begin this new section of Romans 8, you'll notice that Paul introduces yet another stark spiritual contrast. The contrast is between those, as you'll notice, between those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the, what? The Spirit. It's not a description here of two types of Christians, one who is holy, one who is not so holy one who is doing well in the Christian life, one who is doing not so well in the Christian life. No, this is a description of someone who is either united to Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of life, and thus walking in the Spirit with his or her mind on the things of the Spirit, or a person who is still united to Adam living under the dominion of sin and death with their minds set on the things of the flesh and walking in the flesh. Now, of course, and we'll deal with this more later uh, this morning, but also in other uh, messages that we know that true Christians can still struggle with and even give in to the sinful desires of the flesh, of course. But the contrast that Paul is making here is dealing with something different. It's a contrast between a person who is indelibly united to Christ and one who is still united to Adam and thus remains 
in his or her sin and under God's condemnation. And one who is alive in Christ and lives according to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So, as we move through this magnificent section of Paul's epistle, let us do so attentively and let us do so prayerfully. For some, for some, even here this morning, this might be a time of reckoning. A time of reckoning when you realize that, if being honest, you have a mind that is indeed still settled on the things of the flesh. If you're honest, you, you will say that it is true that I do not think Christianly. I do not, my mind, we, we, we confessed it earlier. I'm not that smart, wonderful providence that in our confession of sin this morning, we confessed that we do not always have the mind of Christ. That is the mind of the Spirit. And so we confess our sins. But if we're being honest, some might say that they recognize that the patterns of their thoughts, the patterns of their worldview, the, the way that their mind works, it is not working according to the Spirit and according to God's truth. It's working according to the world. Worldview is a, is a helpful category when we think about the way we think. Do we think with a Christian worldview? Is our mind conformed to the, the Scriptures as the truth? And, and, and does, it, does it form and fashion our, our views to be a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview? Or do we look through the lenses of the world? You see, this is the mind of the flesh and one who is still dead in their sin and is not a Christian at all. This is the mind of, that's, that's walking in the Spirit, who has a Christian worldview. And so for some this morning, it might not be a question of merely changing one's attitude, but changing one's allegiances and bowing the knee to Christ, surrendering to Him as your sovereign King, receiving His grace and forgiveness which is given to all who come to him through faith and repentance. If that's you, if that's you this morning, you're thinking, you know, I may be that person. My life is entangled in terrible, wicked patterns of thinking and behavior. I don't think Christianly. Then here's good news. There is hope for you, as there is for every sinner and that hope is found in the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the whole message of Romans. The 16th century German hymn writer, Peter Sporadus, penned this gospel hope so beautifully in his powerful hymn, Salvation Unto Us Has Come. It's, in, it's on page 430 of the hymnal. Uh, it has the fragrance of Romans all over it. Listen to these words. Salvation unto us has come. By God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is our one Redeemer. What God did in His law demand, and none to Him could render, caused wrath and woe on every hand for man, the vile offender. Our flesh has not the pure desires the spirit of the law requires. 
and lost is our condition. It was a false, misleading dream that God, His law, had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light. Sound like Romans? That lurks within our nature. From sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was hopeless and in vain. Our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poisoned dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed, and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Amen. Dear friends, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Oh, how wonderful were the hymns written in the 16th century compared to the frothiness. You know, next time you have a latte and you see the froth on top, that's sort of modern, a lot of modern hymnody, songs. That's the gospel depth and richness that we need to sing as God's people. Well, as we turn our attention to our text, This morning, and look specifically at verses 4 through 8, there are two simple headings if you're taking notes. And again, you know the drill. We're going to be in these verses for a while. We're going to be squeezing out the glorious truth in these texts. But but here this morning, we're going to think about these two headings, a life according to the flesh and a life according to the Spirit, specifically looking at verses 4 through 8. A life according to the flesh and a life according to the Spirit. Now, Before we go on, let's remember the context. The apostle, in the first four verses of chapter 8, provides a kind of conclusion or summary statement of his teaching in the first seven chapters. That is, that we are all born in sin, depraved in every part of our human faculties, and guilty before a just and sovereign God, and that we need a Savior. We need a mediator that we would be right with God. And in light of the fact that Christ purchased our redemption with his very own blood and credited to us his very righteousness, and by his grace uh, we received him through faith, we are thus no longer, what? Condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the glorious Summary statement there right at the beginning of of chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wesley said it well, didn't he? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So verse 2 goes on and states that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son, his one and only son, in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin as a sacrifice for sin 
on the cursed cross. And then Paul writes that the Father condemned our sin in the flesh of Jesus. Christ was punished for you. Christ was condemned for you. Christ received the wrath of God for you and for me because he was bearing our sins in his flesh on the tree. And so God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin to be that perfect mediator and to to receive in his very person, in his very flesh on the cross, the punishment that we deserved, the hell we deserved. Why does he do this? Well, Paul writes again in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We who, now listen, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So all these things are true of us. All these things have been done to us by God's grace. We've received these things. We who, now here's the description of who we are, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, those who are united to Christ, the one who bore our sin in his flesh on the tree, those who are justified by faith and no longer condemned, those who are set free by the spirit of life from the law of sin and death, those who have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in them are also those who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Do you see, dear ones, what Paul is doing here? He is bringing us back once again to this foundational principle that there are moral implications to our union with Christ. There are moral implications to our salvation in Christ. It's not just, I'm saved, now I just live however. It's not that I have this sort of fire insurance in my back pocket that I'm going to pull out on the day of judgment. It's that we were dead in sin. We were under the dominion of sin. We were under the law. We were uh, uh, under the rule and slavery of sin, and it affected every part of us, our mind, our heart, our will, and affections, But now, by the grace of God, we've been raised to new life. We've been given God's Spirit. We are united to Christ. And now our mind, our heart, our will, our affections are all being transformed by the grace of God. And even better, we are standing before God even now, justified, no longer condemned, brought into a right standing with our holy God, who is now our loving and merciful Heavenly Father. So there are moral implications to union with Christ. We have been set free unto a life of spiritual growth and increasing godliness. Teaching and discipleship and preaching that does not emphasize the implications of salvation being that we are bearing fruit and doing good works, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, is preaching and teaching and discipleship that is unbiblical. It's called antinomianism. It's this idea that that you can be saved unto a life of continual slavery to sin, that nothing really changes. There's no difference in one's life. As a Christian, you you simply have the belief. You have the, the mental assent, but it has no real bearing upon your life or your allegiances or your commitments. But what kind of a savior would that be, one who does not call us? to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and what? Follow Him. What kind of a 
God would not demand allegiance and love and delight and to give all of ourselves to him. Our marriages, our families, our children, our, our vocations, that we would lay it all out before him and say, Lord, I want to glorify you in all of these things. No secret compartments, no, no secret lives. This is what the Lord has set us free unto, a life of spiritual growth and increasing godliness. We are not saved by good works, but we are certainly saved unto a life of good works. We are not saved by our Christian fruit-bearing, but unto a life of spirit-wrought fruit-bearing. Pleasing God is not the grounds of our salvation, but the evidence of our salvation. Evidence that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we are indeed united to Christ and living according to the Spirit, and no longer under the dominion of the flesh. Remember, remember Thomas Boston, that great Scottish Puritan preacher who had that wonderful illustration in his book, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, that mankind is either a branch on the, the tree of Adam, which is dead and putrefying, or, or a person is in Christ and a, a branch on that, and growing and bearing fruit. And so what happens in salvation is the Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, breaks a person off of this and engrafts them into the vine of Christ. And once brought into the vine of Christ, there is new life and fruit that comes uh, from that, that life. You see, when you plant a seed in California soil, um, things grow. Things grow. You know, I'm from California. There's kind of the joke that you can just sort of throw rose um, uh, seeds for rose bushes out the window and, you know, come back in a week and there's beautiful roses everywhere. So things grow. We, I grew up with grapefruit trees to my right and, uh, and orange trees across the street and uh, roses and flowers everywhere. God's beauty so magnificent uh, in, in California. California's having some problems these days, but... Uh, there are still many lovely things about uh, my home state. But then there's Georgia clay. Have you ever tried planting things or growing things in that red, nasty Georgia clay? I think they try to write poems about the Georgia clay and uh, try to sing songs about it as if it's something good. I don't think it is. Um, it gets all over your clothes. It stains things. You can't grow anything. But there you go. In Christ, we have... The California soil, things grow. It may not be as quick as we like. The fruit may not be as abundant as we want. In fact, it never is. We always feel inadequate. We always feel that we're not doing enough, thinking the right things enough, sharing enough. We always fall short. That's why we continue to, to confess our sins and we continue to abide in Christ who alone is our life and salvation. But, but this, this Georgia unbelieving clay, nothing is there. No life. No life. Let's see how Paul describes the life of those who are still living in the flesh. Notice he says at the end of verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The description of a Christian is one who walks according to the Spirit. Uh, then he goes on to write, 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, uh, they do not have their minds on God, on His Word, on His will, on His law and promises, on His grace, on His glory, on His purpose for our lives. Their minds are not fixed on the loveliness and truth of Jesus. No, their minds are on the things of the flesh. Now, one might ask, what are those things? What are those things of the flesh? What's Paul thinking of? Well, it's those things which are contrary to God's law, an affront to his divine holiness. And of course, in Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul provides a long list of things that would qualify doesn't he? In chapter 1, Paul mentions idolatry, that is, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry, which is simply the putting of anything in the place of God. Paul also mentions sinful lust and sexual impurity with special mention made of uh, the unnatural and shameful acts of sexual deviancy. He also refers to things like covetousness and envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and slander and gossip and insolence and arrogance and disobedience to parents and hypocrisy. These lists of transgressions are found uh, all over Paul's letters and certainly would include what he has in mind here regarding the things of the flesh. In his letter to the Galatian church, Paul underscores, doesn't he, some of the same points he's making in our text for this morning. Mainly the contrast between a life in the Spirit and a life in the flesh. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 15 through 26. What has been, as you're turning there, you know, what has been such a, a wonderful blessing just in my own life um, in the preparation of these sermons in Romans is seeing how extraordinarily connected all of Paul's letters are to the forcefulness of the message and arguments of the book of Romans. And here we see that in Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Look there with me. But I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is, under the crushing demands of the law for your salvation. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Isn't it interesting that he leads with those three things? You'd think he lives in 21st century America. Look at that. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Does that not describe our culture? Well, it also describes ancient Corinth, the city from which he wrote this letter. It also describes first century Rome, the city to whom he sent this letter, the churches there. And, and, and so we know that they were in this kind of an environment as well. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those who live with these patterns of thinking and living, who are outside of Christ and still under the dominion and slavery of sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, here's the good news, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have crucified and are crucifying, by the way, are mortifying. In Romans 8, we're going to learn about the mortification of sin. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we have been made alive by the Spirit, let us walk then in the Spirit. What Paul is saying here, he is saying in Romans 8, isn't he? Be who you are. Dear Christian, be who you are. Are you in Christ? Are you a possessor of the Holy Spirit because you are in Christ? Then walk according to that Spirit. Don't live according to the flesh. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. No longer walk in the ways of the unbelieving world. To have one's mind set on the things of the flesh means that sin indeed still has dominion. The mind is set or fixed or comfortably situated on the things of the flesh. It's a darkened mind of unbelief. And this could be different in different people. This could look differently to different people. There may be, uh, you know, you think of the, the pornography epidemic right now. So it is an epidemic. It's everywhere. So much so that nobody wants to talk about it and nobody even wants to say that it's a bad thing when it's an absolute disgraceful thing to be caught up in that. And, and, and if, if by chance anyone is, repent and throw yourself into the merciful arms of Jesus. Turn from that. Confess it to someone. But here's the thing. That secret sin is, and, and other kinds of sin aren't always as, as, um, as clear as that. There are a lot of good things in the world where people set their minds on them and make them actually a god or religion, like college football, like Major League Baseball, like international soccer. There are all kinds of things. We could just keep going down the line. I'm picking on sports right now because that's the world I grew up in, and I saw it, and I see it. And I see my own heart drawn towards those kinds of things. And so it could look different in different people. But the question is, where is your mind? Where is your mind settled? If God is considered at all for this type of person, he is an afterthought or only called upon when trouble arises. A mind set on the things of the flesh that the, uh, that the apostle in verse 7 says is hostile to God. A mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, verse 7 says. Deep down, he is not neutral. 
because he does not want God to control his life. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is antagonistic, hostile towards the God who wants his highest allegiance and chief love. In addition to being hostile to God, those who are still in the flesh are unsubmissive to God's law. That is, rather than seek to obey God's law out of spirit-wrought gratitude and duty, the mind set on the flesh refuses to submit to God. Indeed, it cannot submit to God, it states in verse 7. Why? Because there is no spiritual life in them. How can someone submit to the law of God joyfully, delightfully, for the glory of God, if there is no life in them? You see, they are dead in sin, on the pathway of death. And did you notice what Paul states in verse 6? For to set the mind uh, on the flesh is death. Death, this life leads to death, eternal death. One commentator writes, quote, To allow the things of the world completely to dominate life is self-extinction. It is spiritual suicide. In addition, John Murray writes that, quote, To mind the things of the flesh is to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. The mind of the flesh is the dispositional complex, including not simply the activities of reason, but also those of feeling and will, patterned after and controlled by the flesh. That is the mind set on the flesh. Something that I find fascinating is the misery and death among some of our culture's most famous glamorous, talented, and wealthy people. It's extraordinary to me because everybody is longing for what they have, but then look at those who have it who are often so miserable and depressed and even suicidal. Again, God has made us for himself, and we can't find contentment or joy or delight or salvation in anything but him and in his son But think of those who have everything the world can give them. And yet with minds on the flesh, set on the flesh, they despair and die a tragic death. Think, for instance, of Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, George Michael, Prince, Robin Williams. Now you are... uh, guessing my age right now, that these are the names that I am mentioning. There are others in the last 20 years, of course, who have, who have uh, uh, died tragically by suicide or overdose, who seemed to have it all, all the fame, all the glory, all the money, all the sex, all the possessions. How could they not be happy? How could they not be fulfilled? Their minds are set on the flesh. That is why, dear ones, Their minds are set on the flesh. And what is the end? It is death. It is death. Shame on us when we seek from the world what can only ultimately bring death while not looking to Christ and walking with Christ in the Spirit. You see, these folks had everything the world could offer. But in the end, it leads to death. But there is another way 
the way of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit of life in Jesus. And this is a life according to the Spirit. Look with me again at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. What a contrast. What a stark contrast between those who are still under the dominion of sin and and seeking from the world uh, all that it can get and yet being in despair and, and, and miserable. Seeking to obey the law to find some kind of a relationship with God, and yet that law is, is, is impossible to follow with the kind of perfection that God requires. But God sent His Son, and in Him we have life and peace. He went through the death that we deserve so that we could have the life that we don't deserve. Those who are united to Christ and who have this life and peace set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Of course, this mainly means that they set their minds on Jesus. On Jesus. You see, He is our life. He is our peace. It's the main role of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? To direct our hearts and our minds and our faith to Jesus Christ to abide in Him, to worship Him, to adore Him, to gaze upon His beauty and His loveliness. Every day when we wake up, we, we look to Him by grace through faith, and, and we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. We wake up knowing that whatever we do during that day, It's never going to amount to enough to make ourselves right with God. And so we abide in Him because He has accomplished our redemption. And so we live in that grace. We serve in that grace. We serve with grateful hearts, not guilty and fearful hearts. And all the while, we are conformed to His image more and more by that same Spirit. Paul elucidates this point in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen to these words, glorious. If then you have been raised with Christ, hear that language, union with Christ? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, now listen, where Christ is, where he is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. That is, in Christ you have died, Romans 6, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. What is the result of living in the Spirit and keeping our eyes on Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What, what is the result? It's, it's life and it's peace. New life through the Spirit of God. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. We have new life, abundant life here, now, 
this side of heaven and, and perfect, unobstructed life in heaven forever. That's the result of living in the Spirit. Life and also peace. That is the peace with God and the peace of God. The peace with God, which is that, that peace that brings together a holy and wrathful God against sin and a hostile humanity in that sin and through the gospel, through Christ, through the love of the Father sending His Son, there is no more hostility. That hostility has been broken. The curtain's been torn in two. We are invited into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Christ. That's the peace we have with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5 and verse 1. And we have the peace of God experienced in different measures. The peace of God, that abiding peace which ebbs and flows but is ours in Christ Jesus. And this is important, dear ones, as we bring this to a close. And I mentioned it earlier. Walking in the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, does not mean that we no longer struggle with the flesh or experience the temptations of the flesh and remaining sin in our lives. We most certainly do. Some... uh, get this idea, perhaps through unbalanced or even poor teaching or preaching or a book they've read, that there's some kind of a higher life of Christianity, and there's kind of a lower life, and there are all these levels of Christians. Nonsense. Everyone who is in Christ is equally in Christ, united to Christ. Now, that union with Christ never changes. The weeks that you have 48 quiet times and the weeks that you have no quiet times and kick your dog. That union with Christ does not change one single bit. Isn't that good news? Not one bit does your union with Christ change. Once you are brought into union with Christ, you are in Him. You are saved. You are secure in Him. You are safe in Him. You've been forgiven of all of your sin and and His righteousness has been imputed to you. And you are robed in that righteousness and nobody can take it away from you. If all the demons of hell rose up and said, I'm going to go after this one, they could not touch you because you are united to Christ and your place in heaven is as secure as His place in heaven. Union with Christ does not change. But communion with Christ, our relationship with Christ does ebb and flow. It changes. There are good days and bad days. And that's the Christian life. Welcome to the Christian life. But we are commanded as those who have been raised up to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. To walk according to the Spirit means that we have life and peace, and we find that through Jesus Christ. And so walking in the Spirit is ultimately, isn't it, it's keeping our eyes on Christ, our crucified and risen Savior, the one whom we are called to 
to, to look to, who is at the right hand of God, who represents us as our mediator. We abide in him through word and sacrament, don't we? You see, we were delivered from this dominion of sin, from, uh, from under the crushing demands of the law, from the slavery of sin. We were delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and this deathly dominion, and we were brought into this dominion of life under Christ. We are no longer under the law and its crushing demands. We are under grace. We are, we are united to Christ, and all uh, that's true of him is now true of us positionally before God because we have been saved by him and we are united to him. And, and in this realm, we're now in the realm of the Spirit, and we are called to live, but it is true that in this life, we often find ourselves wandering back into this sphere, looking back like the like the Israelites saying, you know, the food was pretty good in Egypt. I'm getting sick of this manna. And we do that as Christians. But when we do, we need to recognize it and confess our sin and repent and, and, and come back to Christ and, and uh, the Christ who is, is holding us all along. He's always holding on to us, and he, he commands us to hold on to him, which is life in the Spirit. Holding on to the one that is everlastingly holding on to us. And so, beloved, as we walk through Romans 8 together, let us not only rejoice in our right standing before God, because of what Christ has done for us, and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are justified in God's presence. Let us also rejoice in the moral implications and the fruit and blessings of walking in the Spirit, growing in Him, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death and crucifying the the remaining sin in our lives, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And we are in him. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this rich text with layers of glorious 